Welcome everybody to the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Abraham DeWeese. Back once again with us is Brian the Soul Man Solak. Matt, that damn dirty duck Matthew Page is out there somewhere on the boards. And we have a very special guest. One, former Mariner, Jeff Nelson. How are you doing today, Mr. Nelson? I'm great. I'm great. I'm glad it's able to work out to talk to you guys. Oh, we are so happy to have you. We, we, we have you for a limited time. So let's go straight into the questions. Everybody out there who's listening knows who you are. So we don't need to give a complete rundown. <laughs> however, however, uh, you did mention something before the show and I would like to catch people up on what you have been up to, uh, lately. You mentioned that you're working with the Marlins, right? I do TV radio and pre and post. So this is my seventh season with them. It's funny because I have no affiliation whatsoever with them, and, and I got a job doing TV. So I was lucky with that. And I do a little bit of Yankee stuff as well in the Yes Network, and I do a lot of appearances with New York as well. Fantastic. Outstanding. Um, everybody wants to ask about 1995, but I actually want to ask, 95 was historic for the for Seattle and for the Mariners yet. In the offseason, they made the, one of their worst trades in the franchise, trading you, Tino, and Jim Machir to the Yankees. At that time, how did you feel about that? I was a little surprised because I remember the paper coming out and saying that between Tino, myself, and Mike Blowers, that they weren't able to keep all of us, that they were going to have to trade one. And they wound up trading Blowers to the Dodgers. So I thought, okay, Tino and I are safe and we'll be able to come back and try to go even further than what we did in 95. And I, I was actually, I did every single caravan that the, the Mariners have, have done, you know, all throughout Washington, going into Oregon, going into Idaho, going up to Canada and all, all throughout there. The fan base is really a, a large fan base for, for Seattle. So the one place I never went was Alaska. And I'm like, okay, I want to go to Alaska. So Dan Wilson and I went and I forget what it was, but, we went to Fairbanks and Anchorage and we were in Juneau and I had one more, we just completed almost the second to the last day of our, our trip. And next thing I know, I'm sitting in my room and I get a phone call from Woody Woodward. And he just said, we had one more day to, to complete the caravan in Alaska. He said, we just traded you and Tino to the Yankees. And then I get a call from Bob Watson from the Yankees, the Yankees GM. And he says, Hey, we just acquired you welcome aboard. And, <laughs> you know, I was taken back a little bit. And then all of a sudden, you know, I had to ask Woody Woodward to listen, you know, or I asked, uh, you know, Bob Watson said, I know I just got traded, but I'm on a Mariner caravan. Is it okay if I spend the last day here in Alaska promoting the Mariners, even though I'm a Yankee now. So it was, uh, it was really surprising, but you were going to another place that was going to win. What a strange situation to be in. Uh, you, uh, you've had three stints with the Mariners. What keeps you coming back? Well, I lived there for 20 years. And, you, you know, I, when I came up in 92, my first full year there, it, it just seemed like, and Seattle's one of the few places, I don't know of any other city in, in Major League Baseball that players decide to stay there. Like people that are, guys are from all over the United States and all over the country they decide to make their home in Seattle. And I had a lot of good friends, Ken Griffey Jr., uh, Jay Buhner, Randy Johnson. We hung out a lot together in the wintertime, played golf, did a lot of different things. And it was really a great place to raise kids. And I lived out there for 20 years. And, you know, even though when I was in New York from 96 to 2000, I still came back in the wintertime. I just stayed in New York during the season, but I made my home in Washington. Very cool. Okay. 
Um, I, I got to ask this for my day job. My boss is a huge Yankee fan. So you wanted me to ask you a bunch of questions, but I picked one. Uh, <laughs> I, Derek Jeter has said publicly that the ghost of Yankee stadium will appear. Did you ever feel anything supernatural when you were playing there? You know, it, it was funny because, you know, that's what everybody kept saying is like all the ghosts from Monument Park, you know, would, you would appear and help the Yankees somehow win. And there was always something during those years that we were playing for. And, and it was, and it was kind of like, not a tragedy, but you know, somebody was sick, like Joe Torrey's brother had cancer and he was fighting cancer. It seemed like we were playing for that. Uh, Daryl Strawberry one year, I don't know, maybe it was 96 that he had, he had prostate cancer. We were playing for that because he was our teammate. There was always, there always seemed to be something going on. And, you know, and sadly it was maybe a sickness or somebody was going through something that we kept rallying around that. And probably, you know, a lot had to do with Monument Park and the, and the vibes that old Yankee stadium, you know, gave our, gave the players. It was the most intimidating place for a visitor to come in. And I don't think that exists anymore. I don't know if anybody is really intimidated by going into an opposing stadium, but Yankee Stadium was one of those that you didn't or very rarely did you ever see opposing hats on fans. You know, that was like a taboo. If you did, it was getting tossed and stomped on and poured <laughs> beer poured all over. So, you know, that was one of the things that, that Yankee Stadium brought. Outstanding. Very, very fascinating. Uh, Question for you about the 2001 Mariners, the greatest team ever to never win the World Series. Right. Uh, was, uh, Yankees were good, but you guys were better. What happened in the ALCS? Like, what, what do you believe in your heart of hearts uh, uh, led, to, led to the, um, uh, and unfortunately, the Yankees winning that series? Yeah, you know, even 95, I thought we were better than Cleveland, and I thought we should have went to the World Series, and I thought we should have beat Cleveland in the ALCS. We you know, I don't know if we were just exhausted, especially offensively in that year. But in 2000, you know, being a Yankee the last five years, you knew when teams were the opposing teams, you, we knew that they were done. We knew that we were going to close them out and that they had no chance. And being on, a, on the Mariner team and after we barely got by, I think it was Cleveland in the, in the, the division series, we went five games. I don't know if some guys felt the pressure of, oh, oh, we won one sixteen. We have to get to the World Series to try to complete this and be one of the all-time greatest teams ever. But I, I think a lot, you know, po the postseason brings so much pressure and, and all eyes are on you. You know, during the season, if you mess up one game, hey, you have another one to come back as a pitcher and I can redeem myself. Or a hitter, you know, you go 0 for 4 or you go through a slump at 0 for 10, you know, I'll get out of that because I have 162 games. The playoffs are magnified and such that, that even when you make mistakes, there's no getting out of slumps. You'll just continue to be in that slump. And for pitchers, you know, you make that mistake. It's almost like you can't go back to that guy because you're like, oh, I don't have a lot of confidence or the manager doesn't have a lot of confidence in it, in them. I, I think we had some guys. I mean, you look at ga game four was a key game for me because I thought after we were up one to nothing and I said, OK, this is a this is a pivotal pivotal transitional game for us. We win this. At least we go back to Seattle and I think we'll have a great chance. But the home run that Arthur Rhodes gave up and then Sasaki gave up in the ninth, that, that, that right there, that moment right there, I knew that we were going to lose it, because I've been on the other side and I felt that I've seen the other teams. And as a Yankee, you knew that, you know, we're not that we're going to walk out on the field and win, but the other team was probably gone done. And I felt like 
for as a Mariner in game four after that game, I felt, okay, I, I think we're done. I, you know, we had Aaron Seeley going in game, what was a game five and he, he didn't do, a, do that great during the playoffs. And, you know, some of our relievers didn't do as well as they did during the regular season. It, it was tough. You know, I, I felt really bad for the fans in Seattle. I really felt bad for Lou. You know, it was, it was one of those things that he really wanted for not just the Mariner organization, but I think the fans in Seattle. Awesome. Thank you. Quick follow-up to that. Um, speak, speaking of, uh, speaking of Lou, uh, I'm sorry, Brian, I'm stealing one of your questions. That's here. fine. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did he have? Could you put your finger on what he might have that other uh, managers may not have had that made him so successful? Well, you know, one, one thing, I've, and I've always told him that he he was the reason why I had success in New York. You know, he might have been one of the toughest managers I've ever played for, but if you if you saw him in the way he's trying to manage you, uh, he wanted to get the best out of you. And, and this is not a kid's game. Obviously, it, it has changed a lot as far as the mental part of the game. And, and back when he played and when I played, it was a lot of tough love. You know, you didn't have, uh, you know, the media was a little bit ruthless, not in Seattle because they only had three guys that covered us, but he was a manager that got the best out of his players. And if you took him right and, and if you, if you learn from him and just listen to him and yeah, and, and accept that, Hey, he's going to give you criticism, but it's going to be constructive criticism. How are you going to take it? Are you going to sit there and let this get to you and, and always see like Lou Pinella every time a ball comes to you on the ground or you're throwing a pitch and you're seeing Lou behind the plate and he's catching if, if that's happening, then you're probably not going to make it in the big leagues. And I think that was him testing guys. And, and you know, from him playing in his New York days, playing there, managing there, he learned from Billy Martin. Billy Martin was a tough love manager. Uh, you, you know, he wore his feelings on his sleeve. You know, if you messed up, he's going to let you have it. If, if you weren't consistent enough, he's going to let you know that, hey, this is a big, this is a man's game. You better start doing this and doing that if you want to stay here. So you, I, I took that in and I learned, I learned a lot from that. And, you know, I didn't like obviously getting called into the principal's office and, <laughs> and, you know, getting scolded, but I learned from that. I learned from, I mean, he's played in the major leagues for a long, long time coming up from the Kansas city Royals all the way to a, as a Yankee, maybe he wasn't too fond of pitchers back then, but uh, you know, I, I learned a lot from his teaching and his managerial style that when I went to New York, you know, they booed everyone. Those fans booed everyone. And it was like, okay, if you're going to boo Derek Jeter and Bernie Williams and Mariano, you, I, I'm going to get booed too. So it's okay. I'll just get over it. But, you know, he's a great manager. I hope he gets into the Hall of Fame one day because I think he deserves it. Yeah, he does deserve it. Um, you, were, you were nasty with when you pitched to right-handers and lefties seemed to hit a little bit more off you than righties. I mean, what's the different, why are we more effective with right-handers and left-handers? I guess I'm trying to say. Yeah. A lot of it is probably because I didn't face as many lefties as I did righties. Um, from my arm angle, when I threw three quarters, you know, even nowadays guys that throw sidearm, if whatever side they're throwing the opposite, the hitter, like for instance, the left-handed hitter would see my ball a little bit better because of the angle that I'm coming from. Uh, you know, and then I started later mixing it up and coming over top a little bit and coming inside with them. And, you know, it was just, I think it wasn't a mental block. It, you know, I always felt like I could get anybody out, but a lot of it was okay. I didn't face a whole lot of them. And, you know, I guess if I face, like if they have the rule now, you have to face a minimum of three batters when you come out of the bullpen. 
maybe it would have been a little bit different. But, you know, I was always concentrating on, hey, if a tough lefty was up and I was facing him, I'm looking on the on-deck circle and seeing if that's a right-handed hitter, and I'm going to walk the guy, and then I'll get the righty out. Awesome. Right uh, did you ever care if you were a closer or a setup guy or anywhere else in the bullpen? I, I realized back in those days, especially, they had the rule aids, spells relief, closer of the year. Right. Uh, so there was probably a lot more shine on that uh, that title. But uh, did it ever matter to you whether you were uh, in any of those positions? No, you know, it didn't. You know, I got my token one or two saves every year. You know, it was whenever the, you know, if you're pitching the eighth and all of a sudden we go up by a number of runs and it didn't need to close her. But, you know, after 2000, I was a free agent. And before I signed back with Seattle, I had the opportunity to go to some places that I could have closed and be the ninth inning guy. But I wanted to go to teams that I wanted to win. And, and I loved the role that I was in. I loved coming in with men on base. I loved pitching the seventh and eighth inning. Uh, you know, I always felt that I could pitch the ninth inning. It's just so I wanted to be on winning teams. And the only way to stay on winning teams is, hey, you're going to have to be a setup guy. So going to New York and back then Seattle, I knew those teams were going to win. Follow, follow up to that. Thank you very much. Follow up to that. Uh, it seems from a fan's perspective, at least, that closer position doesn't seem to matter as much anymore. There's been a lot more emphasis on uh, getting the right reliever in for the right situation. And sometimes people even put their best pitcher in, you know, in the seventh or eighth when it's necessary. Um, have you noticed that in baseball or is that? Uh, yeah, I have. And I think a lot of it is because there's not, there's not that consistency in the ninth inning anymore. So I think a lot of teams are searching for that guy. You, you know, there used to be maybe five lockdown closers in the game four or five years ago, six years ago. It was more emphasis, obviously, when I played. I mean, every single team had a ninth inning guy. And I would say 15 or 16 of them were probably lockdown guys in the league. Now they're now that you don't see that. You know, I do TV with the Marlins and they don't have anybody that can pitch the ninth. It's something special about getting those last three outs. And it's a big mental block with guys when, okay, seventh, eighth inning, they know if, if they're getting in trouble, they can look over their shoulder. Somebody's going to come bail them out. In the ninth inning, there's not that guy really. They're, you know, you're it. You're the last. You're the last bridge to end this game. And some guys can't handle it. So I think a lot of teams just don't have that consistent guy that can get the last three outs, and they're just trying to find it. Uh, you know, you don't have that consistency. It's a shame because I think if you want a successful bullpen, I think having roles makes a successful bullpen. I think when you have the seventh, eighth inning guys, they know who they are. And you know who that ninth inning guy is, and that's going to be it. You know, he's he's our guy until he pitches his way out of that role. You just don't see it, and I think that's why you see a lot of weakness in some bullpens. Okay, uh, I got some quick rapid fire questions. If you could give one yeah. or two words to describe uh, the following people: George Steinbrenner. Uh, he, he was the most. He was the greatest boss, and, and he had the most passion that I've ever seen an older to win. Outstanding. Roger Clemens. Outstanding teammate. And, and I learned so much from him. I, I used to watch him when he pitched for the Red Sox and, and the Blue Jays. And, and I learned a lot. Him and Randy Johnson, I used to watch a lot of how they faced hitters, and I wanted to do the same thing. Okay. Mariano Rivera. Greatest reliever ever. This guy was – you never knew if he had a good game or a bad game. And now I think that was a key to a reliever when you're, when you're basically motionless and you know, it was 
just amazing to watch and be a teammate of his. Yankee announcer, John Sterling. A legend. You, you know, the, the legends like that, those voices, they just sink into your heart and they melt you and, and they're recognizable throughout, you know, and, and all of baseball, some of the great Ernie Harwell. I mean, it's just, they just, they just breathe baseball and listening to them just puts you at ease. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Dave Niehaus. Another great voice. Uh, you know, it brings chills to my chills to me right now. Just, I, I still remember 95. I still love listening to him and, and those calls. And again, another passionate baseball man that his voice will resonate with me forever. And even Rick Riz, you can throw that in there as well. You know, there are just some guys that around baseball that, you know, you, you will never forget. Outstanding. Last one. I got it. Michael K. You know, he, he is, he's, I love Michael K. I think he does such a great job. I listen to him a lot on the radio and he's, he doesn't hold anything back. And I think New York is one of those few cities that you can do that, that he can express how he feels and he has his own radio show and he, and he tells it like it is. And uh, some guys may not like it, but again, you know, look at the mirror, look in the mirror sometimes because he's usually right. He's a great guy. He's a great, uh, great broadcaster. Well said, well said. Who, who do you think was the greatest, who, greatest Mariner closer that you set up for in your time with the Mariners? Well, it's been, let's see, I had Norm who has a Charlton, who has a great, has a great resume, obviously Sasaki, you know, Sasaki did really well when he was there and, you know, it was fun watching him pitch as well. He's a, he didn't speak a lot of English, but, you know, we wanted to learn a lot of Japanese back then. And we sat in the bullpen. He has in, his interpreter, but he was probably the best closer, I think, in, in Mariner history that I can remember. Very cool. A question for you. Uh, speaking of Japanese, uh, so Ichiro came in when you were there. Yeah. Uh, and so it seems ridiculous. Like we, we, I mean, we as in the fans, you know, uh, uh, we're all concerned that, Mm, this guy came from Japan. There's never been a, there's never been a fielder, you know, like a position player from Japan, you know, uh, is this really going to work out? And then you just look back, you know, we, I look back 20 years later, like, God, how dumb were we? Like, <laughs> yeah. did you guys, did you guys have the same, or is that just a fan thing? To, to no, it, we, as players, we thought the same thing because you, if, you, if you thought a lot of players that came over from the Orient and uh, Asia, they, you know, they just really didn't do well in the, in the big leagues. You know, it was a different style of baseball. I think that they played over there. They had more days off. Could he handle the rigors of 162 games? Uh, you know, he wasn't, he was a skinny guy. So he wasn't a big, a big Asian player that was going to come over here and maybe handle the pressures of, of the major leagues. So yeah, you were always questioned. You're always skeptical. Okay. How are these guys going to do? Because the media and everybody built these guys up to be, you know, you look at a Hideki Arabu, you know, rest his soul that he was supposed to be the next Nolan Ryan. And he, and he didn't have a, a lot of success, but the media and everything, everybody pumped him up. And the same with Ichiro, Ichiro, he came over like a rock star. He was like Elvis. There were so many media, media members from Japan. And when he came over to spring training, I think even Lou Pinella was a little skeptical about, okay, what are we going to get from this guy? He hasn't really hit in spring training. Uh, he can't really handle the fastball. He, yes, he was a really good outfielder and he had a really good arm. But as far as at the plate, you know, I, I don't know what we're going to get from him. And the next thing you know, the season starts and, and some switch flipped on 
And this guy was one of the most exciting players in baseball to watch. And, and during batting practice, I think this guy could win any home run hitting contest. I mean, it was just nonstop hitting home runs, hitting home runs and batting practice. But, and he was a guy that was really nice because most Asian players that come over, they have their interpreters and they, they speak through them. But he wanted, he said, okay, I'll have my interpreter, but at the same time, I don't want you around when I'm around my play, my teammates. I want to learn English. And at the same time, we respected that and we want to learn Japanese. So he was a really good teammate. That's cool. Uh, last question for me. You you were on KJR. You're now on TV. I mean, you're, you, did you always have a passion that you wanted to go into radio when you're done with your career? Or did you ever consider being a, you know, a pitching coach? I mean, I think you'd be great at that. Yeah, you know, as a coach, you're always tied, you know, nowadays you're always tied with the manager. So if the manager doesn't have a lot of success, you're out with them. So, you know, I like teaching. I, I like talking to some of the players now in the major leagues that I'll pull them aside. Some of them, they go, oh, I, you know, you're afraid to step on the pitching coach's toes, but sometimes you see more than maybe they do. Uh, and pitching coaches are, you know, it's very time consuming. Those, these guys put in so much work. It's, it's almost worse than being a player. They're at the field so much. But when I even when I was playing, I had my own radio show at KGR when I when I came back in 01 and we did it for three years. And it was something that I always wanted to do. I was either wanted to do radio or I wanted to do TV. So on the road, I would sit in the locker room for the first inning and I would listen to the opposing opposing announcers. You know, some are really good and that I really like listening to all the time. Um, you know, Ken Harrelson and uh, um, the other guy, Wimpy and. Hawk, Hawk Harrelson, they in Chicago, the White Sox announcers were one of my favorite to listen to every time we went in there. So I would listen to them and say, OK, this is what I want to do. And and, you know, eventually it didn't happen right away. But after a while, then it then it did. And, you know, I like describing the game and I think, you know, not sugarcoating it. I, if a player doesn't do well, then I'll describe why he hasn't done well. But I'll give him his his kudos, too, if he if he has a great game and explain why he did. So I like doing it. I don't have to ice my arm anymore, and it keeps me in the game. Right on. <laughs> nice. Hey, question for you. I read I read online that uh, there was a move called the old Jeff Nelson, a, a move oh, where yeah. you avoided the balk. Can you explain to us <laughs> what the old Jeff Nelson was? Well, it was the first to third, and the, uh, Michael Kay always say, oh, the Jeff, old Jeff Nelson, and that's how it came up, and he, he's the one that labeled it. And I must have done it 100 times. It's when you have a first a runner on first and third, and it's usually a 3-2 count on the batter that I'll fake a th throw to third and then I'll try to go over to first because usually that guy on first will try to get a bigger lead. I think out of 100 times, I only caught one guy. But a lot of times you'll either do it just to try to steal an out because maybe you're not feeling that great on the mound. Sometimes I'll do it if I didn't have a great grip on a pitch. Uh, and now they think, oh, you know, we got to save time. And, you know, that, co that costs us like five seconds of game time. So we're going to consider that a balk. <laughs> What do you think about that? What do you think about some of the new rules where you can only throw to first twice and you need, you can only take 15 seconds between. Yeah. They're trying to implement that stuff in the minor leagues and they're starting with it. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if some of it will come up to the big leagues. I don't know if the throw over twice, twice will, will ever come up to the major leagues. Maybe the time clock will hopefully the automated strike zone never, never comes up. I don't know. You know, I, I think, I think old school and, you know, I know some of the games are long and I think a lot of it, a lot of it is now because guys are coming out of the bullpen 
for their, their starters and they don't know how to throw strikes. They just want to see how fast they're throwing. They want to turn around and watch, oh, I'm throwing 99. And they really don't care and they don't really don't pitch. Uh, so there's a lot of walks. There's a lot of deep counts. And that frustrates broadcasters. It frustrates me. And, you know, in games that are <laughs> two to one and they're lasting three and a half hours. I said, that should never be. But I, I don't I, I, I like the old school style like this. I, I don't know what was wrong with what was wrong with baseball. I mean, was it such a big deal that guys were getting taken out at second or, you know, somebody was getting run over at home plate? How often did that really happen in, in, during a year, maybe a handful of times? Uh, and, and the shifts. I mean, you had guys that would go the other way. You never saw shifts when Edgar Martinez was at the plate or Ken Griffey <laughs> Jr. Or, or these big time, you still hit the same amount of home runs, these home run hitters, and they hit 280 to 300. Now these home run hitters are, you know, they're, they're hitting the 40 homers, but they're hitting like 210 and striking out over 200 times. So <laughs> I know I never really understood what was wrong with the game in the beginning, in the, in the beginning, a long time ago. And now they're just trying to change everything. They think, Oh, we have to speed it up because everybody wants fast pass fast fast paced games you know it doesn't seem like it's going to it doesn't seem like it's happening maybe in the minor leagues you, you'll see it but not in the major leagues the major leagues is all about winning and whatever you can do to win and however long it's going to take a team you know you're going to you ask the Atlanta Braves and say hey you won the world series but hey you got to pick it up you got to pick it up a little bit no no it's just not going to happen it's about getting to the world series in the playoffs and if it takes three and a half hours to do it or two and a half hours then so be it. Right on. Well, I know we're getting towards the end, but Matt will not let me end this show without asking you this question. Um, yeah. So apparently you tried to sell some of your body parts online. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> there was some, <laughs> what, what was it, bone spurs uh, that you It was bone on, chips. You know, I had. Put up for auction. I had surgery. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think last week was like the 20th anniversary because I did something with Dave Softy Mahler on it. And it was his idea anyway. That was back. It was 02. And I had surgery in the middle of the season to take some bone chips out. And I was out like two weeks. And I had it done in Seattle, uh, I think by Dr. Calfan. He's the, he was a team orthopedist then. I think he's still the Seahawks orthopedist now. And but he gave them to me. He says, hey, what do you want with them? And, and I'm like, oh, I'll take them. And I was doing the radio show still once every every Tuesday for an hour. And Dave Softy Mahler wanted to say, oh, bring them in. I want to see them. So I brought them in. And he goes, oh, what are you going to do with them? I said, I'm going to throw these things away. Well, remember Curtis Williams, the running back for the for the Huskies, when he, he got, I think it was during a game, he was paralyzed yeah. and couldn't play anymore. He goes, how about if uh, we try putting this – there was back – then I think somebody tried to sell players gum on eBay. There was like a player's hair, hair that went on eBay and it sold. He goes, how about we put this on eBay and see how much money we can raise for the Curtis Williams Foundation? I'm like, yeah, go ahead. Whatever. It's going to raise money. It got up to like 20 some thousand dollars. <laughs> and I'm getting calls. The team was in Toronto. I'm getting calls everywhere. Like, what are you doing? Are you really selling? I said, no, it's not my idea. But I agreed to it because it was going to a good, a good cause. And then eBay finally pulled it. And said, hey, we can't, uh, we can't sell body parts. I think KJR put it on his own website. And I think they got like three grand for it. And it, I mean, it wasn't very much, but it went to the Curtis Williams foundation. And, you know, so it went to a good cause, cool. even though it was a little embarrassing. <laughs> right. <laughs> you still have your world series rings. If you don't mind me asking. I do. I do. I have all four. And unfortunately I don't have them in a safe deposit box. I have them in a backpack in a closet. So hopefully nobody hears that. 
right on. Well, yeah, and hopefully nobody living near you has hears this yeah, podcast. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you. I know we have to respect your time because you need to you need yeah, to yeah, yeah. get thank moving you. on here. Um, but we want to really thank you very much for being on this uh, podcast. Uh, and I'd like uh, do you do you have anything you'd like to promote? Uh, any any no, social media? Like, or, you know, I always, I always root for the Mariners. You know, it's the only team that hasn't been to the world series. And, you know, I hope the fans get to experience that. I remember the all-star game in 2001 and how passionate the fans are there. And, you know, uh, I always root for them. So hopefully they can turn things around. They had a really good year last year and maybe with the expansion of the playoffs, they could try to sneak in there this year. Right on, right on. But you do have a handful of games that if people are traveling, they might see you. uh, Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. Um, all right. We always like to end the show on an upbeat. <clears throat> we give a shout out to a person, place, or, you know, something <laughs> that, that, uh, ends a bit on a positive note. And, uh, Brian, I'm going to go ahead and start with you this week. All right. I'm going to give a shout out to you, Jeff Nelson. We've been blessed to have many guests this last year, and I just want to thank you for coming on. It's truly an honor to give you a little prop, some props for, the Seattle area and you're a big part of our history and one of my favorite of all time. And I'm just going to announce here, I'm going to start a bandwagon and get the manners to have an all-time all-star team and get you on that team because you deserve it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. It was my pleasure coming on anytime. Right on. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Steve and Michelle Pfeiffer. Their anniversary is today. Uh, good friends of mine. Uh, I was their efficient and Good to see that they got a they got a baby girl coming here pretty soon. Nice. Um, Jeff, do you have a shout out for us today? Well, I still have. I have four daughters. One lives in Florida, and I still have three out in Seattle. So I'll give a shout out to my daughters out in Seattle. One just graduated from the University of Oregon, so it was uh, it's a it's an honor for her. She was an architect, went there for five years. So you know, I'll <laughs> shout out to my kids in Seattle. Well, that'll make Matt happy, the Oregon fan uh, on this show. Um, All right. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Mr. Nelson, for joining us. He was Jeff Nelson, former Mariner, uh, current good guy. And uh, we are the Seattle Sports Union. On behalf of Brian, the Soul Man, so like that damn dirty duck, Matt Page, I'm Abraham Deweese, and we'll see you guys next time.